recently that's going on. It's a little relevant to what we're going to be talking about later today. Hey, Piers Morgan. Liam, you're, well, look, your dad is British. Your mm -hmm. father is British. This is true. So you're a little more hip to British culture. What do British people think of Piers Morgan? I want you to speak for all of Britain. Yeah, yeah, I'll speak for all of Britain. Um, Well, he's doing television in America, isn't he? Isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? I should, he, well, oi, mate, he sure is. That should answer your question. <laughs> okay, good point. This is media major. It sure is. We tell stories about stuff. I'm Liam Sr. I like movies and TV, so I tell stories that have to do with that. And I'm Tom Lockney, and I like video games and internet culture. And actually, I don't like I was about to say, things. both those things suck. The recurring bit on the show is that we do not enjoy the industries we're obsessed with. And normally what we do each week is we'll pick a theme and tell uh, a story from each medium surrounding that theme. But we're going to say fuck it this week. There are no rules this week on medium majors. <laughs> there are no rules for... There's a cow in this room. Yeah. And later... I'm going to drink its blood. <laughs> Why would I it's drink milk its blood? It's milk is right milk. there. Oh, it's classic comedy, you guys. Uh, <sighs> Tom, I believe you're going first this week, and I'm, you're stalling because you don't want to talk sure about it. I am. Oh, Christ. All right, a quick prologue to my story. Uh, we're talking about some extremely fucking rough internet stuff. Like, uh, okay, hey, guys, I'm talking about PewDiePie, who just said the fucking N-word a week ago. Still, that's... That's practically yesterday. Yeah. But I'm not just talking about that. It is going to get even worse somehow than that because YouTube gaming is is like a cesspit of horrible people. I'm not I'm not fucking kidding when I say this. Trigger warning for like literally everything you could possibly imagine. It it gets really bad. But you know what? It's fun to wade through the muck together. Chapter one. In two thousand and five, YouTube was created. And it's sort of the Wild West for a while. Nobody really quite knows what to do with this video platform yet. And everyone is wearing cowboy hats. Many subcultures begin to appear. You know, makeup tutorials, cover songs, personalities, ideas that we see populating the modern YouTube ecosystem. Random core. One such subculture is gaming. Because, you know, turns out people like to watch other people play video games. This has been a thing for a while. Uh, Let's Plays, commentated playthroughs of video games have existed for some time, originating on the website Something Awful. Early YouTube gaming is mostly just Let's Players testing out YouTube as a release platform for their content and then eventually migrating over. We can thank older brothers everywhere for the popularity of Let's Plays. <laughs> and then something happened. Call of Duty Modern Warfare releases in 2007 and becomes one of the defining influences on all of YouTube gaming then and still today. Call of Duty is an incredibly popular game, so there's a lot more people interested in watching a Call of Duty video than say like your Let's Play of Silent Hill. Mario Party 4. It's also an extremely versatile game. You can do you can do a playthrough of it, but also you can make trick montages. You know, there's there's the competitive hook to the game. So the, the short and, and the short amount of time it takes to complete a match makes for like a really ideal watching experience. Mm -hmm. For a while, everything on YouTube gaming is just like, yo, check out my Call of Duty video. I'm just gonna talk over this. Hey, what's up, inter what's up, internet? It's 
Travis. It's Travis Trombone <laughs> something or other. Sure, yeah, Travis it Trombone. It was in the 2000s. We all got a little quirky and weird with our usernames. And today I'm going to talk about, oh man, the balance in COD 4. Oh, the Deagle. The Desert Eagle. Ugh, oh, guys. What are we doing there at Infinity Ward? The Deagle? That's what... I know, I know. I just... Yeah, I Thumbs know. Thumbs down. Oh, man. This becomes a really great game for pumping out regular quick and dirty content. It becomes nerd football. <laughs> Call of Duty's nerd football. And fuck sure. you if you say I'm wrong. No, I agree with you. <laughs> YouTube gaming starts to pull big numbers, like millions, and a cottage industry sprouts. A hierarchy of personality and figures emerge. It stops being about the gameplay and more about the commentary. It is incredibly important to talk about the figures this phenomenon installed at the top of the YouTube hierarchy. Because these are the people who will go on to define the culture and, and influence what is going on on YouTube today. It's mostly white guys. Shocker. Overwhelmingly so. Mm -hmm. uh, people like uh, T. Martin, who re recently, or like last year, was involved in a uh, gambling scam, the CSGO gambling scam. That was like, I think the very first, first episode, episode of yeah. Media Majors. Wow. Uh, Call of Duty put him on the map. It put him in the position of power he used to scam kids out of their money. Uh, I should note, by the way, I strongly dislike YouTubers. Gotcha. There are a couple who follow me uh, who I've met, and I don't know if you're listening. You guys are cool. Like, there is a reason that I follow you. I'll, a lot of other YouTubers are not great people. I think, I think most of them are, like, morally bankrupt evil people. Like, evil. Yeah. Uh, the ones in power definitely are. <laughs> That's how power works, Tom. Yeah. The culture they created is extremely toxic. It's, it's a lot of, of bigotry. Like, you know, sexism and racism is a fucking huge problem on YouTube. Always has been. A genre of troll video emerges wherein the commentator will find a game with a black person and call them slurs. That was like, that was like an entire fucking subgenre of Call of Duty videos was people recording themselves going into games with like, women or black people and hurling slurs at them and being like, hi, isn't it funny that they get mad? If you get a reaction out of them, it means that it's their fault. Here's another story that's even worse. Uh, one girl, oh, goody. One girl was a Call of Duty YouTuber, and uh, I'm, I'm not naming names here. She was coerced into sending a uh, nude photograph of her breasts to a establishment YouTuber. She was an up-and-comer. Up he was establishment. He started flirting with her. Oh, by the way, she was 15. He lost his job over it, but the community came to the, his defense. Like, all of YouTube overwhelmingly was like, it's this girl's fault. Why would she send him the photos if she didn't want to fuck him? Ugh. If I'm remembering correctly, she was bullied off of YouTube. What awful pieces of human garbage. Uh, some of the figures who blamed her for sending the photos uh, ran a popular podcast that still continues today called Painkiller Already. Once on this podcast, a co-host named Woody's Gamertag insisted to a lesbian guest that lesbian women were never truly lesbian and that he could get her to fuck him, to want to fuck him if he tried. That's some good cool. podcasting. Cool. Should we stop doing this podcast because we'll never have a podcast episode as good as that? Oh boy. Give him the Peabody Award. Another host, FPS Russia, who is not Russian, by the way, just does like a tacky Russian accent because get it, it's cool. I'm from Russia and I shoot guns on YouTube. 
he would regularly spout the belief that Barack Obama won the U.S. presidency solely because he was black. Hey, maybe, maybe their views are different now. I don't think they are. I don't think they are. I went and did a little research on this podcast recently, and uh, and it's important to talk about these stories and these things. Like these are the people who run not like YouTube the organization, but YouTube gaming the culture. Ugh. These were gaming's first influencers. They pigeonholed YouTube gaming into this shitty, toxic, racist, misogynist, bigoted church that worshipped the first-person shooter. It was fucking terrible. But it was still not as broad as it could have been. The obsession with first-person shooters, Call of Duty specifically, ended up stagnating the culture. People began to lose some interest, you know, like, there was, there was a very big discussion for a while, like, hey, like, is Call of Duty gonna run out of steam and then YouTube gaming is gonna collapse? Because these fucking idiots, like, can't even conceive of playing a different game. Uh, and then something happened. Again. Oh, no. Minecraft. Oh, okay. Explodes online in, in about 2010, mid to late. YouTube gaming, once again, sees explosive engagement. This is thanks not only to Minecraft's status as the fresh new fad, but also due to the new demographic it pulls to YouTube. Kids. Ah, uh, yeah. Yep. Because, sure, you know, Call of Duty is popular with young adults. Like, I don't know, it's rated M for Mature, but it, you're lying to yourself if you think that, like, 12-year-olds aren't watching Call of Duty videos. Yeah. But it lacked the kid-friendly aesthetics that drew in people younger than, say, 10. You know, like, parents who still vet the content that their kids consume will see, like, a Call of Duty video and go, like, oh, that's guns. Like, that's that's not cool. But they see Minecraft, and they go, oh, like, it's okay, Legos. Is, yeah. yeah, it's Legos. It's a kid's game. Like, sure, you can watch this content. Not realizing that, like, oh, the people who commentate over this are, are the fucking scum of the earth. Mm -hmm. So the content remains unchanged. It's still the same people. It's still the same faces. A couple new people gain popularity. Folks like the Yogs cast, but even they've been in YouTube gaming for a while. Uh, there is one newcomer onto the scene. Oh, boy. On October 2nd, 2010, Felix Arvid Ulf Schellberg uploaded a video entitled Minecraft Multiplayer Fun under the name PewDiePie. This is the environment that he enters into. A culture ran by toxic prejudiced people, supported by toxic prejudiced people. And these are the people who are about to become his fans. Chapter 2. So I've talked about how Call of Duty and Minecraft were the cultural bulwarks of YouTube. But there's one more game I haven't yet mentioned, and despite the fact it's a much smaller game, mm. I'd be willing to put my cards on the table and say that it's more important than both of them, at least in regards to this story. Mario Strikers. Mario Strikers. This is true. We've been playing a lot, a lot of Mario, Mario Strikers. Strikers recently, and fuck, what a good game. Okay, what's the game? <sighs> I'm talking, of course, about Amnesia. The Dark Descent. Oh, right. Duh. Amnesia The Dark Descent, for anybody who doesn't know, is a... Well, I have a giant Amnesia The Dark Descent poster on my wall. <laughs> There's Amnesia, and then his pal Dark Descent. Yep. And they go on an adventure. And they're both cops. They're both and they're, cops. And they're both trying to remember... One of them's trying to remember who his wife is, and the other one's trying to remember who killed his wife. Yeah. Aw. And it turns out they're married to each other. Aw. Yeah. It's a fun twist. Happy ending. Yeah. No, what's... What's this game about? Amnesia the Dark Descent is this kind of like gothic first person horror game. It's very, very good and it's very, very scary. Ooh, I like it. It didn't create a YouTube subculture or pull in a broader demographic of content consumers, but it did propel PewDiePie to fame. Because see, after the first dozen or so of his videos, 
uh, he stops making content about like Minecraft and Call of Duty. Mm -hmm. He starts doing a Let's Play of Amnesia the Dark Descent. And the bulk of this content is screamcasting. Screamcasting, a lot of, man, a lot of YouTube jargon, and I do not like any of it. Uh, is when you're playing like a scary game and then like a scary thing happens and then you shriek loudly like usually the reactions are uh, forced to to like heighten the drama Marky Plar is really good at it <laughs> I don't watch his videos anymore but for a hot second I was like oh this is yeah. entertaining yeah because you know people think it's really fun to watch people get scared it you is know, they, it, it, it is it's funny unequivocal fact yeah uh, and Felix is to the minds of the masses extremely good at this he builds a subscriber base running through Amnesia and its plethora of fan mods. That's how he, he elongated the content was there was like a lot of fan mods. Genius. And that's when I remember PewDiePie coming into my sphere of awareness, a friend of mine. <laughs> Wait, hang on a second. Let me clarify. A person who was my friend at the time and no longer is uh, because he is a Nazi now. Ah. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's yeah, a yeah, friendship yeah. ender. Yeah. He but sent me. We're not going to go to the barbecue together. <laughs> You're from Wisconsin. <laughs> And you're Indian. And you're from... <laughs> <laughs> we needed that. Oh man, that is a true fact. The friend, the former friend of mine who is Nazi, who is a Nazi, is Indian. That's... It is wow. really confusing. Uh, he sent me one of PewDiePie's videos. I want to say back in like 2011, mm. so around that point. And that was, and I remember watching two of his videos going, man, he screams the word rape a whole lot. And then going, I don't think this one's for me. Because yeah, screamcasting is not the only hallmark of PewDiePie's content. One of his signature moves early on is to constantly, constantly scream. And I, I mean like scream rape. So like when he gets hit in the game. Mm-hmm. He will scream the word rape when he picks up there's like a statue in the game and you can like pick it up and move it around and, and he like created a character that he would speak to because he's an extremely normal human being <laughs> um and he would often talk about either raping the statue being raped by the statue or one of the characters in the game raping both him and the statue as you can see, quality com comedic content. By 2012, he reaches his first million subscribers. By 2013, he becomes the most subscribed to channel on YouTube, a title he holds to this very day. What about that kid who always screams about Sonic the Hedgehog? Oh, man. <laughs> he's my favorite. So, PewDiePie's the king of YouTube. Today, he's got, I think it's like 57 million, and he makes millions of dollars every year doing this. He is the man with a platform bigger than any other. Chapter 3. Though Felix eventually apologizes for his history with rape jokes, he continues to make extraordinarily nasty content. Earlier this year, he leapt into hot water by hiring two men who did not speak English to hold up a sign reading Death to All Jews through the hiring website Fiverr, an action that would cost him his YouTube Red exclusive series with Disney. <laughs> Walt Disney is in the frozen grave like I don't understand why I have, seems perfectly reasonable for me to keep PewDiePie on that I, was the worst Disney impression I could have possibly done 
I'm shocked they did this. Cause like that they pulled the agreement. That they pulled the the series. Because it was by the way, I'm, I'm, it was like basically done. Like it was gonna release the next month, I think. Which means that it was definitely in the late stages of post production. Tom, when a TV show is made, yeah. So what happens is, it's basically two a ten percent. Two very people love each other much. very much. Uh, what basically what happens is. Uh, so many shows would get pitched to Disney, ABC that year. 10% of them are going to get made into a pilot. 10% of those shows will get, like, passed to series. 10% of those shows will get renewed. So Disney has so much pilots, movies, stuff in just their vaults that they just don't give a shit about. It does not surprise me in the least that oh, okay. the second that this happened, they were like, oh, nope, done, we're done. All right, cool. Moving on. That People who were already working on it had already been paid. Like, oh, yeah. by that point, they were just like, you have to also remember that Disney is so sensitive to the Jewish stuff because, because of Walt, Walt Disney, Disney was yeah. like, not the, not like the most anti-Semitic person of the time. He was just of that time, which was very anti-Semitic. Yeah. So rather than own up to taking advantage of strangers to platform bigotry, Felix went the route of YouTube's many horrible pranksters and simply claimed it was satire or like, like a social experiment, man. Isn't it a social experiment to see what happens when I say the N-word to a bunch of black people? No. Isn't that fucking hilarious? No. Like, fuck off. He also yelled at the press for bullying him, despite the fact that his actions, as the man with one of the biggest platforms in the world, are newsworthy. He insisted he was not a racist and would, months later, in the wake of Nazi aggression in Charlottesville, go on to say that he was going to cut it out with the Nazi shit. And then, uh, you all know what's coming. <laughs> that's, well, what, that's what Tom says to his uh, lover the oh moment boy. before he finishes. Well, stream, well, you all know what's coming. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Listen, neither of us is going to enjoy it. It's going to be bad. While streaming the popular online game, Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, Felix said the N-word. We're going to watch that video. Because I think it's important uh, yeah, that we hear sure, sure, him sure. say it. <sighs> Stupid motherfuckers. What a fucking nigger. Jeez, oh my god. What the fuck? Sorry, but what the fuck? What a fucking asshole. I don't mean to end up <laughs> I like how he laughs at the end. <laughs> it's funny because he did a bad thing. Can you believe? Oh my god, I'm so crazy and wild. I can't believe I just said the N-word on the stream. <laughs> do you think do you think um <sighs> Do you think Spoonby Pie plays video games without streaming them sometimes? Like oh, do you think he, he de just... Yeah, he definitely does, and he definitely says the N-word when you he knew does exactly it. where I was going with yeah. this then, yeah. I'm so surprised because he. How long has he been li like a live streamer as well? Oh man, I, like while I'm, I'd imagine. Yeah. So like, I'm surprised that this is the time that this happens and gets a reaction and like he hasn't slipped up like this before. So a lot to unpack here. <laughs> I should note from this point on in the story, like Felix is done. I, I like frankly, I don't fucking care about his apologies. Like it's been years and years and years of him saying and doing whack shit and apologizing, and I just like, I don't think he can change, and I I don't care if he does. Like it's just too late. The the bridge has been crossed and then burned. Are you saying that it's too late to apologize? Uh, it's too late. So like, hey, 
White people? Don't say the N-word. Can't believe we have to say this. I can't Dad. believe we have to say this. I can't believe that we, in the year of our Lord, Lord 2017, 2017, have to... The far and distant future. When the X-Men movie starts and they go in the not-so-distant future, that's now. Now is what they're talking yeah, about. Like, I can't fucking believe that we have to be like, hey, people, you know, like, the word that was specifically designed and created to subjugate, humiliate, and, and persecute an entire race of people that were enslaved and their culture d destroyed. Like, I cannot fucking believe in 2017 I have to remind people that. It is hard to fathom. I can't believe, and by the way, like, uh, we should also say, hey, listen to people of color like find their voices and their takes on the situation like austin walker had a really good thread about it where he was like notice how when he corrects himself he says the word asshole he corrects himself by by using a different like pejorative that is not obviously not racially charged but like but, but means that he knows and it means that to the to him those that's a, those are interchangeable words. yeah, yeah. Also, like, Spawn on Me, fucking fantastic POC-led podcast. Just did their PewDiePie episode. It's, it's a good episode, guys. There's There's been a lot of people who've come to his defense, um, and they've come to his defense in the past. A lot of YouTubers. Uh, what? What? YouTubers have come to his defense? Hi, my name's... <laughs> Mountain Dubert 778 uh, I've never and I, I've never... <laughs> No, I have a huge following. Mm. I taste test different Mountain Dews while I play Call of Duty. <laughs> the argument like, ah, oh, like he didn't mean it. Like the, the notion that you have to like mean it for a racist thing to be racist is, is stupid. Like it's ridiculous. Racism, racism is not just about intent. It is also a structural institutional thing that, that has like very real effects in the real world. There's also the the notion that like well you know what you're the one giving the word power and like hey guess what guys yeah people do give words power you know who gives the n word its power racists when they call people the n word that word has power because the people who use it negatively have assigned that power already so these are our hot takes <laughs> what about everyone else's the gaming community at large exploded in response. Obviously, your average YouTube commenter didn't give a shit. Like, hey, guys, if, if you don't want to get extremely worried about the, the kids who watch PewDiePie's content, uh, do not read the comments on that video because it's a lot of kids with anime avatars, A, saying, lying and saying, I'm black and I don't care. Or people just going like, yeah, whatever, man. He didn't mean it. It's not racist. Free speech. However, large industry figures reacted quite strongly to this, as they should have. Sean Vanneman, speaking for Campo Santo, the developers of Firewatch, announced on Twitter that they would be claiming a DMCA copyright strike against all Campo Santo content on Felix's YouTube channel. This means that that content is gone now. It's dead. Because here's the thing about YouTube gaming. Here's the, here's the fun secret about YouTube gaming. It's all illegal. It's like 100% illegal. There are video essayists who, who do have the legal authority to use gameplay footage because they're uh, under, yeah, they're they are like reviewing. 
it's how a certain podcast duo is able to uh, <laughs> use, use an entire YouTube video in their episode. <laughs> but but just like playing a game and commenting over it, that's that's illegal. Yeah. Well, actually, that in and of itself is not illegal. What is illegal is using that to gain ad revenue from it. Yeah. Gaining ad revenue from streaming another creator's content is a breach of copyright law, and developers are 100% within their right to issue DMCA takedown. Of course, most don't, because YouTube undeniably helps game sales thanks to large visibility that comes at a relatively low cost. Uh, however, this option is available. Recently, like, Nintendo has been, come under fire because, like, they were just like, hey, like, Nintendo products online that is not officially sanctioned by Nintendo, we're gonna, like, demonetize that. And so basically what that means is like, nobody makes Nintendo videos anymore. So Santo issued the takedowns and were met with success because it's legal because they get to do that. Yep. Important to note, if just two more developers do the same thing, Felix is gone for good. Whoa. Yep. If you get three of these copyright strikes on your channel, what happens is YouTube nukes your channel, just removes it and makes it impossible for you to create a second one to try and come back. We need two more companies to do this. Yeah! Oh, we need yeah! two more companies to step up and do this. So, though we are clearly in support of Campo's DMCA action, uh, there are some hand ringers who believe in the precedent. What sort of precedent will this set, right? What sort of precedent would deplatforming bigotry set to these people, it would set the precedent that free speech gets restricted. But let's be clear, hate speech is not free speech. So what sort of precedent might this set? I'm very glad you asked because I, I didn't ask. did a little research. Okay, but I didn't ask. Okay, so if you're, if you're gonna ask me a question, ask me a question. Don't just, don't just send me up with <laughs> some fucking prop. Like a meat puppet. Yeah. So to, to reiterate, hate speech is not free speech. Hate speech actively works towards silencing minorities. It is literally the opposite of free speech. Free speech is counter to, or hate speech is counter to free speech. Free speech just means that you can't go to jail for the things you say. Yeah. The common anxiety seems to be that restricting hate speech will one day be used to limit actual free speech. But as long as I've lived, as many historical books as I've read, and I've been forced to read a lot because my dad's a World War II buff, <laughs> I've never heard of an example where this turned out to be the case. That's weird, isn't it? No. Weird, isn't it? How all the like fascist apologists will be like, but the precedent, don't you know that... that restricting hate speech will restrict free speech no and there's going to be a precedent and then there is none it is completely fabricated so two more out, video game companies i put out the call on twitter to ask if there was ever even once in all of human history a time where laws against hate speech were then later used to restrict free speech i got a response from a nazi who claimed <laughs> that the, during the rise of Nazis, i got a response from a nazi oh boy. and i barfed in a bowl get a lot of those on twitter.com twitter.com uh, so this 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 chuckle fuck claimed that during the rise of uh, fascism in Germany, I'll crack your knuckles on the podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, Weimar Germany had anti-hate speech laws that were then used to prosecute fascist resistance. Now, shockingly, the Nazi lied and completely misrepresented what actually happened. However, I'm glad he brought it up because it meant I got to do a little research on anti-hate speech laws in Weimar Germany. What Ooh, happened? Well, welcome. Yes. What happened was that anti-hate speech laws were used, but only to persecute Nazis. Weird! Weird yeah, how would you... We were getting worried that, like, they were getting <laughs> a little out of hand with the whole, uh, you know, 
take over the thing with the Aryan races and stuff. So we were like, maybe we limit their speech. Now, unfortunately, Weimar was an isolated incident. Germany really didn't have the same hate speech laws. And so, like, the while Weimar was trying to, like, do at least something to combat the rise of fascism in pre-World War II era Germany, the rest of the nation was not. Hitler rose to power. And then when... Yeah, we really goofed it on that one. Oh, boy. And then the Nazis, <laughs> the Nazis did not use the Weimar hate speech laws to persecute free speech. They used, you know, like, pseudoscience, like claims of white genocide, <laughs> things like that, or, or the, the historical equivalent You see, the size of your skull can actually determine oh a lot of things. <laughs> oh, God. Basically, the Weimar precedent is historical evidence that anti-hate speech laws, in fact, do not limit free speech. The DMCs are good, and they are the correct course of action when it comes to excising toxicity in gaming. PewDiePie's not an isolated case. Like, that that was the whole point of the beginning of the story, is that he's supported by YouTube Gaming, straight up one of the worst subcultures on the internet, bar none. He was born and raised by awful, toxic, horrible people. Bigots. Like, just the worst people mm -hmm. who all have a platform because of YouTube. <sighs> At the end of the day... YouTube is still just like a really nasty place and Campo Santo is so far the only group using their power and legal authority to try and change that. So fucking hats off to them. And what about PewDiePie? As far as I can tell, he's not lost any subscribers, not any noticeable amount anyhow. And he's making content as per usual. And he's kept good on his promise to be better and not say the n-word. Well, I'll let you listen to this next video taking place not one week after the initial incident, and decide for yourself. Man, oh, hello. Okay, okay, okay. I have a, it worked, great. <sighs> Took one day for me to almost slip up. Fantastic. Good job. Good job, Felix. I don't even want to say the, the censor version. I'm like fucking, God damn it. So, uh, that's how I am with my story, with PewDiePie almost saying the fucking N-word again. We're gonna take a quick break. Holy shit! And when we get back, we'll have another story for you. <laughs> back in history class, did you ever take a step back from that textbook you were reading and just think to yourself, man, these people are very dumb. Hi, my name is Eric McAdams, and I have a podcast for you. It's called Big Time Whoopsies, and every other Wednesday on the Major Cast Network, I tell a guest, and you the listener, a story from history involving massive incompetence. Big Time Whoopsies. People are dumb, and history can prove it. Liam, please, God, tell me a story. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Prologue. The cinema occupies an important place in the overall development of art and literature. As such, it is a powerful ideological weapon for the revolution and construction. Kim Jong-il, dictator of North Korea, scholarly <laughs> dissertation, he wrote about cinema. Just diving right on the deep end, huh? Part one. Oh boy, eight feet. Red Dawn. <laughs> Soviet records show that Kim Jong-il was born Yuri Ursinovich Kim, in 1941, in the village of Vyatskoye, where his father, Kim Il-sung, commanded the 1st Battalion of the 
88th Brigade, which was made up of Chinese and Korean exiles. Uh, however, in Kim Jong-il's official biography, he was born in a secret military camp on the Paektu Mountain, Japanese-occupied Korea, 16th of February, 1942. So he's one year younger in his own biography. <laughs> oh boy, how many times? I mean, I've lost count of the times that Kim Jong-il has turned 29. I know, right? As a boy, he regularly visited Pyongyang's main film studio, and as a young man, he spotted and fell in love with an actress at the studio, whom he forced to leave her husband and child, and oh. then impregnated her out of wedlock. Oh, normal. Normal thing for a normal person to do. As an adult, he accumulated a collection of 30,000 movies on VHS and DVD. Wow. Oh, boy. What do you think the ratio was? Oh. Like, was he, was he like a Tarantino purist? Like, was he like, I... Oh, digital I, is killing film. I only watch I'm Kim Matthew McConaughey romantic comedies on VHS. <laughs> you need the warm tape to get that timbre out of his throat. Oh boy, I don't really love failure to launch. <laughs> According to GQ, among them every Oscar winner, he would boast to foreign di- uh, dignitaries that he had watched them all, the New York Times reported, and a significant amount of pornography. Wow. Which okay, were, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which were believed to there be sent is. to Pyongyang in diplomatic pouches from North Korean missions in New York and Beijing. Uh, and, does he call his nuts his diplomatic pouch? <laughs> and he kept it in an air-conditioned vault because you don't want the pornography to get too sweaty. Yeah. Kim joined the Propaganda and Agitation Department in 1966 and soon became director of the Motion Picture and Arts Division in what cool, what must be, must be one of the most greatest career pivots. <laughs> I used to work in propaganda and agitation. (laughs) And now I make art. Who are you, Brett Easton Ellis? I used to figure out how to use, like, the horrible starvation going in my country to make the the poor people hate the U.S., but now I think I'm going to try and direct. He was a big fan of films with a library of 15,000 at his disposal. This was in the 60s. And as a director, he reached the public with propaganda films and operas, homogenous in theme, Pride in the Nation, and specifically in Kim Il-sung, then leader, and his father. Kim was frustrated with his films in the early 70s, though. He could tell, in contrast to other films being released globally, that his were dull and lifeless. He realized that he wasn't really a director. He was a producer. He was an ideas guy. He needed fresh and passionate voices that would advance North Korean cinema. So this is just an excerpt from, like, an interview he did. If we continually show Western films on television, show them without restraint, then only nihilistic thoughts can come about. Thus, because of this, I want to give rights to a limited degree. Again, normal things for normal people to say. So basically, he wants to make propaganda that completely brainwashes all of North Korea. Mm -hmm. But he also has to run a country. Oh, boy. So what's a man to do? What's a single guy in New York City? What's a single Kim Jong-il in New York City to do? (laughs) Part two, The Artists. Shing Sang-ok, born October 11, 1926, was a prolific South Korean film producer and director with more than 100 producers, a producer and 70 director credits to his name. Uh, he's best known as the Prince of Korean Cinema, where he made a bunch of movies in the 50s and 60s. The son of a prominent doctor of Chinese medicine, Shin was born in, Shin was born in Chongjin in the northeastern part of the Korean peninsula during Japan occupation. Uh, he studied at the Tokyo Fine Arts School, uh, before returning to Korea three years later. Choi Yeon-hee is a South Korean actress. She began her film career in 1947, A New Oath, and for the next 20 years, she was one of the biggest stars in Korean film and led the Shin Film Company along with her husband, Shin Sang-ok. So they were like a director-star, husband-wife couple who made oh, about 300 films through their film company during the 60s. 
But during the 70s, Shin became less active, while South Korea's cinema industry in general suffered because they went under, like, the strict censorship thing and, like, the government was constantly interfering. The government ended up shutting down the studio in 1978. Sad. Part three. Taken three. Uh Uh-oh. Actress Choi was abducted in Hong Kong when she was propositioned to direct a film and possibly run a performing academy in a Hong Kong school. She was taken from Repulse Bay and arrived in Nampo Harbor, North Korea, what? on January twenty second, nineteen seventy eight. He did, wait, no, no, no. Are you about to hang on a second? Hang on a second. Mm, what's up? Second. Are you yeah, yeah. are you about to tell? Me, oh wait, what's, what's up? Are you about to tell me that uh-huh. Kim Jong Il right was like, we need to make movies. Uh-huh. How do we do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And instead of like hiring, like within the company, let's call it, went and poached talent, like literally stole them. She was housed in a luxury villa called Building what? Number One. She toured the city and was show Pyongyang, shown Pyongyang as well as Kim Il-sung's birthplace, among other landmarks and museums. She was given a tutor who instructed her on the life and achievements of Kim Il-sung. Boy. Kim Jong-il took her to movies, operas, musicals, and parties. He asked her her opinion on various films and respected her perspective. How did she take being kidnapped? It was five years later before she realized that she had been kidnapped. Wait, what? As bait for Shin. What? Because after Choi disappeared, Shin Sang-ok began searching oh for God. her. They had been divorced, and Shin had another family at that time. Uh, and he had also been struggling with the South Korean government, who kept taking away his filming license. Oh, boy. I got South Korea taking away my filming license, mm-hmm. and North Korea taking, taking away, away my, my ex-wife. Wife. He had been traveling the world searching for one of his films to be greenlit so that he could acquire a resident visa. And six months after Choi's capture, Shin was in Hong Kong as well and was captured. Also given lavish accommodations and under the same pretenses. Do we know how they were kidnapped? Like, did a bunch of men... It was literally like, very... They would, they would like... It would seem like it was really normal and then drug them with uh, chloroform, I imagine. Oh, okay. and, and then they'd wake up in North Korea and then kid would keep going on the tour. And they would basically just, like... They're, you know, they really get a brainwashing. That's my favorite Kanye line. Woke up back in North Korea. <laughs> Uh, Shin was put in comfortable accommodations, but after two escape attempts, he was placed in a prison for over two years. Once his re-education in North Korean ideology was thought to be complete, he was taken to Pyongyang in 1983 to meet Kim Jong-il and learn why he had been abducted to North Korea. His ex-wife Choi was brought to the same dinner party, and that's when they first learned that they were both kidnapped in North Korea. Oh, what? You two? Oh, get out of here. And now it was time for the picture. No, literally, like, get out of here. We got to get out of here. Part four, Pulgasari. Uh, this is from Paul Fisher's book, a Kim Jong-il production. It took five years in North Korea to get them to the point where they started working, and by that time, filmmaking was a lifeline for them. They both found Kim Jong-il to be a fairly knowledgeable film producer. When Shing Sang-ok uh, sat down and had production meetings with him, he would find someone who was able to talk to him about a variety of films. So Shin and Choi were shown dear leader, de- the dear leader Kim Jong-il's mm. personal film library. Um, there were a lot of films from the communist bloc, occasionally Hollywood films. They actually were able to make um, seven movies together with a basically unlimited funds at their disposal. Dear leader, it's me, Margaret. <laughs> they actually also won an award in Czechoslovakia for one of their movies. That's an extremely impressive feat because I think if... <laughs> okay, let's let's get crazy here. Mm-hmm. If I was kidnapped by North Korea uh, to act for them, I would be like, "Well, I don't want to do that." With my your life ex-husband, is over. my life is over, and you want me to work with my ex? Are you kidding me? 
The final and most expensive film that they made under Kim Jong-il was called Polgasari, and it was heavily influenced by the recently popular Godzilla films. Whoa! Explosion. Holy fucking shit, that's a title card if I ever saw one. Right? Whoa! Whoa! Does this movie rock? This movie looks fucking awesome! They got a lot of people from Toho to help them. Oh! In, in Japan. Because Shing Sang Ok was like a real. I mean, he's a very good director. Like, yeah, this, this looks well shot and directed. Yeah, we should watch this movie. That's a really good shot. Yeah. I love the I love the monster design. Yeah, with the horns. It's really cool. That suit's really good. Very detailed. The only problem with watching this movie is gonna say produced by Kim Jong Il. Yeah. Well, but so like that's the, the trailer. All the destruction looked very like well produced. Like he would kick a thing and it looked like actual real bricks and stuff like flying through the air. Made in '85, it's about a farmer's uprising in medieval Korea. A little girl pricks her finger while sewing. When the blood falls on a little dragon toy made out of rice, it comes to life as a monster. Weird. That's the plot of brutal legend. <laughs> it fights for the farmers and smashes the emperor's palace. Nevertheless, his, ap his appetite is so big that he starts eating the farmer's tools. So the girl who spawned it decides to sacrifice herself by disguising herself as Polgasari's food. When the monster accidentally eats the girl, he explodes and dies. Shin would later say that Polgasari was supposed to represent Kim Jong Il. <laughs> whose like wanton and needless destruction and oppression was causing more problems than solving yeah, for the farmers yeah uh but kim obviously never put that together or shin would have been murdered yeah <laughs> yeah so they made i lied i said they made seven movies they actually made eight movies on, ah. with king jong il as producer um but they were never truly brainwashed they were just very very patient part five the great escape to defend themselves should they ever escape north korea Choi and Shin decided to sneak in a tape recorder to record their conversations with Kim Jong-il so they'd have proof that they didn't willingly leave the South. Because North Korea was always oh, saying... Oh, North Korea just told everybody... That they willingly why... came here. Wow. To this To this day, that is still what happened. I'd be really bad at running North Korea because I would forget to tell people something like that. In one recorded conversation in 83, Kim spoke openly about his plot to kidnap Shin and Choi and to upgrade the film industry. He told Shin and Choi that it would be best if they spoke to the press saying they came here voluntarily, though, which they did in Belgrade, Yugoslavia. After finishing Pulgasari, the two were in talks with Kim about another film when they took a trip in Vienna in 1986 to scout locations. The New York Times posted an article on March 22, 86, announcing that the couple got away from the North Korean caretakers and immediately sought political asylum at a U.S. embassy. Following their escape, Shin lived in the United States for many years, working in the film industry before returning home to South Korea. North Korea issued a statement denying the claims that Shin and Choi had been kidnapped and still maintained that they had voluntarily defected and left with a large amount of money. Awesome. Man, North Korea really knows how to commit to a bit. <laughs> uh, epilogue. So there's, like, tons more in-depth accounts of this, um... There's movies, documentaries, podcast episodes. There's a drama series about it, uh, wow. uh, of that detail, I, the whole I, kidnapping. Not surprising. That's fascinating. I just scratched the surface because... Uh, so Kim Jong-il and his son, current leader Kim Jong-un, had gotten a taste of Western Hollywood with these movies, and that taste could not be quenched. And you know what Western pastime they loved just as much as movies? Basketball. Kim's loved one player more than all, 
and we'll be talking about all of them next on next week's episode. Dennis Rodman goes to North Korea. Fun. It probably won't be called that. Dennis Rodman's big adventure. Yeah, it'll be called Dennis Rodman's fun time adventure. But that is the story of Kim Jong-il and North Korean cinema. Wow, that's so interesting. I actually would really like to watch that movie now. That that would be... Well, very, sorry? Yeah, that would yeah, be dude. very interesting to watch. Especially especially to knowing that the two director, the director and right. actress were not brainwashed and were deliberately trying to, like, fuck gain his, over. Gain his approval so that they could uh, be trusted to go to scout locations in a place where a U.S. embassy was close by. Man. And, and get asylum. Yeah, so this is the first part in a three-part series I'm doing that won't make sense as a series until the last episode. I'm really excited. I, I mean, like, they're going to be interesting stories regardless. Right, and, and, and then I'm going to tie it all together, and it's going to be very strange. All right, so sometimes on this podcast, like, in an attempt to stay relevant, we, we talk, talk about, about Nazism and events. communism and, I, and, and di- communist <laughs> dictatorships, and I, I'm bummed out beyond all repair. And it's so just, we like to, you know what? You know, deep. come with me, Tom. Let's go down to the garage. Let's go into our most prized car, a 1997 yeah. Ford Fiesta. <laughs> all right, when you stop making noises, I'm going to get into the car now. <laughs> beep, beep. Great. Let's drive down to our favorite spot. <laughs> Again, when you stop making noises. We'll drive down to our favorite spot on the corner of self and care. It's self-care corner. It always is. Yeah, at the end of every podcast, we like to balance out the rough stuff we talk about with the good thing that happened in our days, our weeks, our lives. And I'm going to start off. I got a job recently, which means that I have income, which means that I can spend it on video games again. I have not bought a new video game in quite some time. And well, wouldn't you know it, uh, Tom Francis, developer of Gunpoint and just a uh, co-host of The Crate and Crowbar and all around like cool dude, uh, his new game came out today on September the 21st. It's called Heat Signature and it's about being a space pirate where you go around, you fly in ships and you rob other ships and you can like get knocked unconscious and then be thrown out into space and have to fly your own ship to pick up your unconscious body and it looks really cool and fun and I'm very excited for it because he's a very good game designer and I, I like him. I'm so excited for it. Uh, my self-care I corner. It. I went hiking last week. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> you did. And at oh, one man. point, I went hiking with past guest Jane. And at one point, Jane and I were walking on like a little cliff-esque spot but... You know, to the right of us, big slope of brush going up. To the left of us, more brush going down. And uh, here's some movement on top. And I look over, and I see what I think is a dog running down the hill. And I'm like, oh, it's a dog. And then I see the face of the creature, and I'm like, oh, no, it's not a dog. It's a bear. And a bear is uh, sliding down the brush, basically going towards Jane and I. So Jane and I turn around and run. And we run this corner and we see this family Wait, where of three. Where you guys going? Come on back. <laughs> the good bear voice. I'm trying to play with you. I'm a bear. <laughs> uh, and we're like, you can't go down this path. Which And it was the path to the parking lot because a couple of, uh, a couple of bears are getting up to no I game. got all this honey and I'm really excited about um, it. It turns out they were really chill bears. We walked back and they were just, fo- they were just walking down the trail because the trail back to the parking lot 
it hits a fork where you can go up to the parking lot or down to more forest. And it was a mom and her cub, which usually, like, is extremely, extremely fucking dangerous. dangerous. But apparently these bears are so chill because we just, like, we just walked with them back. And we kept, like, a good distance. And Jane got got to take some pictures of the bears. And Girl, have fun on your hack. It was really nice. Me and my baby are looking for some bears. Oh, the cub. The cub was adorable playing around, being a total goofball. <sighs> I love bears. Bears are just like big dogs, but they have 100,000 knives taped to their palms. And they're so strong. They're so strong. Thanks for listening to another episode of Media Majors, the podcast about major media. Uh, as always, if, uh, if you want to have your self-care corner read on the air, you can email us at mediamagerspodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at mediamagerscast. Also, leave us a rating and review on iTunes if you like the show. Uh, it helps small podcasts like us get visible and get out there. Listen to the other shows on the Major Cast Network. We have us. We have Eric McAdams, Big Time Whoopsie. Yep. We have the filmographers with Lenny and Katie. Is the new episode of that's going to be coming out in a few weeks? Yeah, the first Friday of October. Yep. Uh, we've got Musty TV with Josh Phillips, and I watch television. There's a new episode of that that was really fucked up. <laughs> and then we've have Schmanman and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Listen to those. And as always, unless there's anything I'm forgetting. We'll be oh, shit. There is something I'm forgetting. Oh. Um, so friend of the show in spirit, Luke Strickler, and I oh, yeah. made a little it's, YouTube movie it's short. It's like a weird... It's that we're making fun of web series because all, almost all web series are hella dumb. Yeah. Uh, it's called Two Boys in the City. And it's kind of about us leaving New York and moving here to Los Angeles. And it's very, very funny. So they please check it that out. Yesterday, and uh, I really liked it. It's on Luke Strickler's YouTube channel, so just type Luke Strickler. That's a CK. And uh, watch He's his other videos. Not Luke. Yeah, watch. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm I'm Luke Strickler. I'm Luke Strickler. Luke Strickler. Liam Neeson. <laughs> Two boys in the city. I'm in a couple of other of his videos, and I do a lot of the music for it. So go check out his YouTube yeah. channel. All right. And as always, we'll be there for you. The hell is going on with your voice? <laughs>